come to God in prayer now. Let's pray. Lord God, what we have just sung together, we echo again now as we come in prayer to you. That in your wrath you might remember mercy. That you might revive us again individually and as a church. As we focus on your word, may it come with power and conviction and with the Holy Spirit. May we hear what you say to us and respond to it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Several months ago, Wycliffe Bible Translators, with which I am connected, have been for many years, uh, launched a new website. One of the things on it is entitled, My Favourite Verse. People are invited to submit their favourite verse, so you can still do this, you can access the site, and also give a reason why they've chosen that particular verse. Hundreds of verses have been submitted from a whole variety of people, including Sir Cliff Richard, who chose Philippians 4, verse 13, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength, to the Archbishop of Canterbury, who chose 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18, which is about the transforming work of the Holy Spirit. What is really interesting, to me at least, is the most popular verse of all. Of all the hundreds, I think it's in thousands now, that have been submitted. It's not John 3.16, which is fourth equals. It's not even a verse from the New Testament. No, the most popular verse these days is from an Old Testament prophet. You guess what it is. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Jeremiah 29, verse 11. Now, the book of Jeremiah is one of, it's a close-run thing depending on how you count the words, one of, if not the longest books in the Bible. Psalms and Jeremiah are almost identical in length. Yet, while Psalms is very well known, I would suspect that the book of Jeremiah is very little known, apart from this one verse. So, I begin this morning by asking you, are Christians justified in plucking this verse from its obscurity and adopting it as a kind of bumper sticker for life? And are we in Charlotte Chapel justified in adopting this verse as our verse for the year and putting it on a big poster outside the church so that passers-by might read it and take comfort from it. Now, in order to answer this question, which I'm going to try and do, and I'll come at the conclusion in a little while to give you my answer, we need to apply one of the first rules of interpreting the Bible, which is, a text without a context is a pretext. Text without a context is a pretext. Now, the context in which Jeremiah 29.11 is found is, of course, the whole book of Jeremiah. Especially the preceding 28 chapters which have launched us up to this point in chapter 29. And uh, on Sunday mornings, God willing, right up to the summer break, we're planning to focus on these chapters. 
Uh, you'll see that we're not issuing our usual program ahead of time. I'm not going to the reasons why, uh, other than overwork and other things, but we tend to pick titles way ahead, and then when we get to study the passage, we realize it's not the suitable title. But you'll find in the back of the bulletin every week the passage for the next week. And you will gain most from this series if you read and meditate on it ahead of time and maybe get one of the books that we're going to recommend that you read that will help you to understand uh, this book of Jeremiah. Uh, Today we're going to launch our series, which I've called Living in Hope. And we're going to look at the verse in its immediate context, which you'll find in Jeremiah 29, and you need therefore to turn to this in the Bible. It really is important to have a Bible on your knee in front of you, or... One of those little mechanical things that some of the people are already logging on to at the present time. A palm or something like that. Very useful too. Uh, page 912 in the Pew Bibles. If you can't see a Bible, you just get someone to pass one to you. They're sort of lying around in different places. So, here we go. It's a long chapter. Long names in it. This is going to be hard work, but it will benefit us, not least the preachers. (laughs) This is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles and and to the priests, the prophets, and all the other people Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jehoiachin. And the queen mother, the court officials, the leaders of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the artisans had gone into exile from Jerusalem. He entrusted the letter to Elasus son of Shaphan and to Gamarius son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. It said, okay, this is the letter, all right? This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and settle down, plant gardens and eat what they produce, marry and have sons and daughters, find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters, increase in number there, do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you also will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says, do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. This is what the Lord says, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back from the, to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call upon me and come to me and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I'll be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile." 
You may say, the Lord has raised up prophets for us in Babylon. But this is what the Lord says about the king who sits on David's throne and all the people who remain in this city, your countrymen who did not go with you into exile. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I will send a sword, famine and plague against them and I'll make them like poor figs that are so bad they cannot be eaten. I'll pursue them with the sword, famine and plague will make them abhorrent to all the kingdoms of the earth an object of cursing and horror, of scorn and reproach among all the nations where I drive them. For they have not listened to my words, declares the Lord. Words I sent to them again and again by my servants, the prophets. And you exiles have not listened either, declares the Lord. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, all you exiles, whom I have sent away from Jerusalem to Babylon. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says about Ahab, son of Kaliah, and Zedekiah, son of Masiah, who are prophesying lies to you in my name. I will hand them over to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. He will put them to death before your very eyes. Because of them, all the exiles from Judah who are in Babylon will use this curse. The Lord treat you like Zedekiah and Ahab, whom the king of Babylon burned in the fire. For they have done outrageous things in Israel. They have committed adultery with their neighbors' wives, and in my name have spoken lies which I did not tell them to do. I know it, and I'm a witness to it, declares the Lord. Tell Shemaiah, the Nehelamite, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. You sent letters to your, in your own name to all the people in Jerusalem, to Zephaniah, son of Marciah, the priest, and to all the other priests. You said to Zephaniah, the Lord has appointed you priest in place of Jehoiada, to be in charge of the house of the Lord, you should put any madman who acts like a prophet into the stocks and neck irons. So why have you not reprimanded Jeremiah from Anathoth, who poses as a prophet among you? He has sent this message to us in Babylon. It will be a long time. Therefore build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Zephaniah the priest, however, read the letter to Jeremiah the prophet. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Send this message to all the exiles... This is what the Lord says about Shemaiah, the Nehelamite, because Shemaiah has prophesied to you, even though I did not send him, and has led you to believe a lie, this is what the Lord says, I will surely punish Shemaiah, the Nehelamite, and his descendants, he'll have no one left among this people, nor will he see the good things I will do for my people, declares the Lord, because he has preached rebellion against me. Well, that's a long chapter. Right in the middle of it, is our verse. And as you read this chapter, right in the middle of it, is this message of hope. But it is addressed to people who are in a seemingly hopeless position. They're in exile in Babylon, verse 1. Now, we need to understand how they got there. So let's just retrace briefly the life and times of the prophet Jeremiah. And you'll find them summarized right at the beginning of the book itself. So turn right back to Jeremiah chapter 1. That's on page 755. This is how the book begins. The words of Jeremiah, son of Hilkiah, one of the priests, Anathoth, in the territory of Benjamin, the word of the Lord came to him <clears throat> in the thirteenth year of the reign of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah, and through the reign of Jehoiakim, 
son of Josiah, the king of Judah, down to the fifth month of the eleventh year of Zedekiah, son of Josiah, king of Judah, when the people of Israel went into exile. What it's telling us here, and for those who don't like history, just stay with me, because history is important. If you don't learn from the mistakes of history, you live to repeat them. That's what the people of Israel did again and again. Jeremiah says he proclaimed the word of the Lord. It's actually over 40 years through the reign of three kings that he lists here. In fact, there are actually five kings, but a couple of them only reigned a very brief time. They don't even merit a mention. Okay, the first king that was on the throne when Jeremiah began his ministry was a king called Josiah. He reigned from 640 to 609. And his reign was characterized by cooperation with the prophet Jeremiah. It's a remarkable story. If you've never read the story in the Old Testament, Josiah came to the throne at one of the darkest days in the history of God's people. His father, a man named Manasseh, reigned for half a century, 50 years. It was, he was one of the worst kings who ever sat on the throne. He turned away from the Lord. He indulged in depave, depraved pagan practices and he even sacrificed some of his own sons through the fire on the altar to these foreign gods. And thankfully, young Josiah survived. And he proved to be as different from his father as you could imagine. And he began a process of reform and return to the Lord. It's a remarkable story. One day they were cleaning out the temple which had fallen into disrepair in Jerusalem. They discovered an old scroll. It was the book of the law. Probably the book of Deuteronomy in our Bibles. And when they read it, they were, the king was horrified because he realized they turned against God. And so he began this process of reform. Now, it was in the 13th year of his reign that this young man, Jeremiah, was called to serve the Lord. And king and prophet worked together in tandem. Jeremiah traveled the length and breadth of the nation, proclaiming God's word. They eradicated these pagan altars. They put out these foreign priests. And they called people back to serve the Lord. It didn't make Jeremiah very popular. He came from a priestly family that were corrupt. They were against him. Most people were against him. But the king protected him. But not forever. The little nation of Judah was sandwiched, located at the continental crossroads for trade and armies between the superpowers of the day. If your geography is any good, this is history and now his geography. Uh, in the south was Egypt. Once a mighty power, still a considerable force. In the north was Assyria, which had dominated the scene for a couple of hundred years. But way out to the east was Babylon that was emerging as a powerful empire. And caught up in the conflict, King Josiah, very unwisely, decided to intervene when the Egyptian army moved north to support the Assyrians against the Babylonians. This is the kind of thing that goes on in power politics all the time. King Josiah went out to fight and he was tragically killed in battle. Now, here's Jeremiah, supported by the king. What's going to happen next? Well, the son, one of the sons of Josiah came to the throne. He's a man named Jehoiakim. And he switched the policy completely. He totally opposed Jeremiah. And it, it showed that the reforms, what we might have called the revival under Josiah, was only skin deep because the people turned against him he was verbally abused. He was physically abused. His life was constantly in threat for over a decade. And it was only through the intervention of a few good friends that he survived this period. Yet his words of warning 
to the people, saying, unless you turn back to the Lord, you face defeat and disaster. They fell on deaf ears until the inevitable happened. Soon after the death of King Jehoiakim, the Babylonians marched into Jerusalem and deported all the leading citizens, including the newly installed king, who was called Jehoiachin, and carted them off to Babylon. And they installed another king, a puppet king, called Zedekiah in his place. And his reign was marked by vacillation. That is, he couldn't make his mind up about anything. One minute he would call Jeremiah in and say, what does the Lord say? I'm going to do that. Jeremiah would be encouraged. Then suddenly he'd change his mind completely and listen to other people. Now, it's at this point in history that the events described in Jeremiah 29 occurred. It's after the conquest of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. All the cream of society have been carted off to Babylon, including Daniel, another famous character from the Bible, and his friends. The rest, including Jeremiah, who didn't count for very much, were left behind in Jerusalem. So you've got kingdom split into two. The exiles with the king and the court in Babylon, in exile. You've got Jeremiah and most of the riffraff of society left behind in Jerusalem. Now, let's come to the point. For the people of Judah, who have lived through this traumatic period in history, we can summarize all that has happened to them by our first point, which is this. Failed hope. Imagine in this situation, they're asking questions. What about God's promises? Surely the Lord had promised that his people would inherit the promised land and would dwell in it forever. Surely he'd promised that the city of Jerusalem was secure forever. Surely he'd promised to dwell in the holy place in the temple, between the cherubim, the Ark of the Covenant. Had God's promises failed? And what about God's power? Surely the God who had led them out of Egypt, parted the Red Sea, defeated Pharaoh and his armies, could protect them against the Babylonians. That's what they believed. Surely the God who led them in conquest through the promised land and gave them this land over all the hostile armies, surely he could give them victory. And more recently, what had happened when the Assyrians came in the north? The remarkable events when the angel of the Lord struck down the Assyrian army, 185,000 people. All the people were living in hope that the same thing was going to happen again, and it didn't. And what about God's plan? Had the Lord not made a binding covenant with the people of Israel through Abraham, their forefather, that all nations would be blessed through them, they would inherit the whole earth, this wonderful plan that all the nations would come to Israel and worship the Lord, God's plan, where was God's plan in all this? They hoped for all these things. They prayed for them. And none of them happened. The Babylonians marched in, carted off all their leaders. We can summarize the situation as one of failed hope. That's the context of Jeremiah 29. Now, let's be more practical and come to us in our day. There is no direct equivalence between Israel and Britain, but there is an equivalence between God's people then and God's people today, His church. And there are some striking parallels which merit consideration by those who have got the wisdom to pause and think for a moment. First of all, think about the context of the rise and fall of superpowers. Egypt in the south, Syria in the north, Babylon. And there you are, a tiny nation caught up in the middle of it as armies tramp to and fro. 
and you wonder in the middle of all of it, where do you fit? What now of the British Empire that less than 200 years ago ruled most of the known world? It's gone. What of the mighty Russian Empire that for 70 years and its allies ruled with a rod of iron? Is America, as people claim, the one remaining superpower in the world? Or what's happening as China comes onto the scene and India? Do you not sometimes stop when you look at the news and think, what on earth is going on? And along with this is the decline of true faith in God. Uh, the Christian foundations upon which our society was built for generations, if, if only nominally, is crumbling fast. And in its place are all religions, especially an ascendant Islam, and no religions. There's a saying attributed to G.K. Chesterton. It's what he said. When men stop believing in God... The danger is not that they will believe nothing. The danger is that they'll believe anything. And believing in anything, people practice and tolerate anything. For there are no longer any moral absolutes. Except one, that we must not allow any moral absolutes. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, you must have buried your head in the sand for the last ten years. Because you see these things in our society. And if you're a Christian, a thinking Christian, do you not stop and question, where is God in all this? For the Christian, what about God's promises? In Jesus Christ. What about God's power, the power of his Holy Spirit? What about God's plan that you believe is in place? And I simply ask you today, because I think it's true, I believe there is a failure of hope in Christians and in churches today. And that was the case in the days of Jeremiah. And that's why this is so relevant to us in our day. Now, where this happens, where there is a failure of hope, something else always happens. Happened in Jeremiah's day, happens in ours. So notice secondly, not just failed hope, as we turn to false hope. Some of you now are living in a foreign country. Great to see those international folk from different countries. And uh, when you first come, it's strange, isn't it? The weather's different, the culture's different, the language is different, the habits are different, and you're still trying to work out what's going on. Some of you are still in that situation. I've done it myself, living on at least two continents in the past. But what compounded the situation for the exiles in Babylon, as we've seen, is that they were not there voluntarily. They weren't on a student exchange program. They'd been conquered, captured, carted off. And allied with this, their religion had failed. I mean, imagine you were one of God's people living in Babylon. He said, I believe in the one true God who rules the earth. And Babylon said, you must be joking. It's obvious who wins. Marduk, the Babylonian god. And all our gods, they've given us the victory. If your god was so powerful, how come he didn't intervene and protect you and save you? Now, in that situation, it is a fertile breeding ground for anyone who will offer you a message of hope. And such people, self-styled prophets, were around in both Jerusalem and in Babylon making optimistic promises. 
Um, if you go back to the previous chapter in Jeremiah, chapter 28, uh, there's a prophet called Hananiah. Um, he even had the right name. His name Hananiah in Hebrew means the Lord is gracious. And his message was one, the Lord is gracious. Don't worry, folks. Things are soon going to get better. This is what he said, Jeremiah 28, verse 2. This is, what, this is his message, his prophecy. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. Within two years... I'll bring back to this place all the articles of the Lord's house that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, removed from there, the, the temple artifacts, and took to Babylon. I'll bring back to this place Jehoiachim, son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and all the exiles who went there to Babylon, declares the Lord. I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. Now imagine you're in Babylon and this guy's going down the streets and preaching in, in the streets and going to the exiles and saying, this is what the Lord says. Wouldn't it be wonderful? And he says it's the Lord who says it. Unfortunately, Jeremiah said something completely the opposite. Not only said something, he demonstrated it. The Lord said to Jeremiah, what I want you to do, Jeremiah, is to get a yoke that you normally put on an animal and I want you to wander around the streets wearing this yoke. And your message is, you must submit to the yoke of the king of Babylon. Because things aren't going to get better, they're going to get worse. Now imagine what Hananiah said. He said, well, I'll do something about this. So he went up to Jeremiah publicly in the street. He took off the yoke from his neck and he broke it and he said, this is what the Lord says, in the same way I'll break the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, off the neck of all the nations, within two years. Well, who do you think won the popularity stakes? You know, if this was prophet idol. Listen, they voted off Jeremiah long ago. Hananiah, great message, brother. We'll have you back next week. And also in Babylon, there were other prophets doing the same thing. Guys called Ahab and Zedekiah. But the Lord says they're preaching lies. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says about Ahab, son of Kaliah, Zedekiah, son of Masiah, who are prophesying lies to you in my name. Uh, naturally, these prophets didn't like it. And that's why if you read at the end, when we read the end of the chapter... There's a guy in Babylon called Shemaiah. And he sends a letter back to Jerusalem, to the people in authority and says, you should be locking up and putting in stocks guys like this Jeremiah who are telling all these lies about staying here in Babylon. The Lord's going to bring us all back home soon. But Jeremiah says, these prophets are false prophets. They're not speaking in my name. They're telling lies and they're facing my judgment. The Lord's denunciation of false prophets. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them. Now, the test of any message from the Lord is not how pleasing and popular it may be, but whether it is true and whether it comes true. For these false prophets, what they said proved to be false. They themselves suffered the terrible consequences for their lies. And what Jeremiah predicted about them and God's plans came true, including this terrible message of judgment. In fact, if we just move forward in history, as Jeremiah prophesied, things did not get better, they got worse. 
King Zedekiah changed his mind once too often, turned away from Babylon, and supported Egypt. And the Babylonians were having none of it. They marched into Jerusalem, and this time they didn't just cart a few people off, they killed hundreds of thousands, raised Jerusalem to the ground as rubble, demolished the temple, and carted everybody off. All that were left were a few stragglers who didn't count for anything. Now, let's come again to our own situation. In an age of despair, an age of confusion, people look for some message of hope and there are no shortage of offers. I noticed in this week's Radio Times, didn't watch it, didn't need to after I read the review, um, a piece about a program entitled, some of you may have seen it, called Trust Me, I'm a Healer. It featured a self-styled shaman, a witch doctor, a person who claims to intercede with spirits, called Peter Aziz. The filmmaker said, he introduced me to an invisible gnome. And he said it was a remarkable experience. It made me tingle all over. The producer of the program, in the review bit I read, asked, why anyone would want to put their trust in such a person? And here's what the producers call Rachel Bell. This is what she said. Listen very carefully. It's striking. People want meaning in life, particularly if they're ill and about to die. One terminally ill lady insisted we show the film about Peter Aziz, even if she died, because she felt one had to have hope. As it turned out, it was false hope. But this series shows, notice these words, this series shows that false hope is better than no hope. Really? False hope is better than no hope. And while this may not be surprising, although it is remarkable, is it not? What is surprising is how many messages of hope are offered by people today in the name of Christ. I can think of many occasions, and I don't want to be hypercritical, I can think of many occasions over the years as a Christian, 45 years, I've sat in meetings and listened to people give words from the Lord, either in English or in tongues with an interpretation. Over all those years, I can only think, and I thought as hard as I could, I can only think of two occasions when any of the messages were in any sense negative. Yet, if the sad state of our society is at least in some measure due to the failings and sins of God's people, not just the work of the evil one and evil people, then surely there must be some element, if not a large element, of judgment which has to precede a message of hope. If we are to experience God's forgiveness, surely we need to know why we need to be forgiven what we need to be forgiven for. And the brightness of God's mercy only makes sense against the dark backdrop of God's wrath. That was Jeremiah's unpopular message. He said, if you sin and turn against the Lord, he will judge his people. So that's Jeremiah. Go to the New Testament. Peter, 1 Peter 4, I think the end of the chapter. It's time for judgment to begin with the house of God. He says, if it begins with us, what will be the end of those who do not believe the gospel? And we live in a world where people offer false hope. They make predictions. 
They lay hands on people and say things have happened to them. And friends, they don't happen to them. And everybody just goes along, though it's never been said. Now, up to this point in Jeremiah, and we're coming to the point now, his message has been almost all judgment. If you want a really good book on Jeremiah, I couldn't find it anywhere other than on Amazon or on, on Google, you'll find it. A book by an American pastor, um, Philip Riken, From Sorrow to Hope. Here's how he introduces chapter 29. Uh, Jeremiah 29, his message on Jeremiah 29. That's what he says. It finally happened. For decades, Jeremiah prophesied judgment upon God's people. Over and over again, he said God would punish them with sword, famine, and captivity. He turned out to be right. Jeremiah knew what he was prophesying about. In the year 597 BC, the Babylonians swooped down and attacked Jerusalem, killing many, carrying most of the rest into exile. Now, here's what he says. When judgment finally arrived, something remarkable happened. Jeremiah changed his tune. The next several chapters are filled with some of the most wonderful promises in all Scripture. After 28 chapters of doom and gloom, Jeremiah came bearing tidings of grace and glory. So we turn thirdly and finally, thankfully, from failed hope, false hope, to firm hope. And our verse. Many years ago, when I was a young missionary, out in India, I found myself on Howrah Railway Station, uh, which is, well, if you've been to Calcutta and seen Calcutta and Howrah Railway Station, you'll know what I'm talking about. It is a place that is a seething mass of humanity. A place to me of utter confusion, especially if you want to get on a train. Even if you've got a ticket, you, well, they used to, when I was there, they used to push you through the window because you can get in through the door. On this particular day, I was with a colleague, and we had tickets to travel down to Nagpur, where we live, which is in the centre of India. It's right in the middle. Hundreds of miles away. But we discovered, to my consternation, that there was a railway strike. And all the trains were cancelled. Which multiplied the usual chaos by a factor of around a thousand, I would think. Something like that. I said, to my consternation, because my colleague, an older, godly man, now with the Lord... When we discovered this, he, I can still see his face. He turned to me and he said, isn't this interesting? I wonder what the Lord's going to do in this situation. <laughs> it turned out that he was right, but that's another story. I have to confess that it had never crossed my mind that the Lord was going to do anything in this situation. <laughs> Where was the Lord in the middle of an Indian train strike? What kind of theology can cope with that? Now, what happened to the people in exile in Babylon was hundreds of times worse. They were asking, is anyone in control? And Jeremiah has an answer from the Lord. Now, he can't go from Jerusalem to Babylon because he's stuck there. So he sends a letter with two trusted postmen. And in the middle of this letter is our verse for the year. The Lord says to these people in exile... Don't worry. Everything's in place. The Lord's plans are in place. For I know, literally in Hebrew it says, for I, I the Lord know. In other words, not anybody else. I, I the Lord know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, 
plans to give you a hope and a future. So let me simply focus on these plans as we draw to a conclusion. First of all, the Lord's plans include past events. Did you notice the contrast between verse 1 and what follows? Verse 1 is the historical account. How did these people get into Babylon? Well, King Nebuchadnezzar did it. You notice what the Lord says. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I, I carried into exile from Babylon. And in case they think they misheard that, he repeats it twice. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back from the place which I carried you into exile. You see, some of us have got this view about God and the way he works in our lives and the way he works in history. Basically, God is somewhere out there, you know, having a rest, and then when things get really bad, like a runaway horse, he suddenly leaps into the street and runs along and grabs the horse and brings it under control. And what Jeremiah says is, no, 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 even the runaway horse is under God's control. Even these disastrous events are under my control. They're part of my plan. In fact, they're the consequences of your actions. But I, I'm in control of this situation. Now, some of us today may be facing similar disastrous situations in our lives and our families. And you wonder, where is God in all this? What we need to realize is that God is in control and he's always been in control. He's the sovereign Lord. He's not a detached figure somewhere out there who swoops down and keeps getting us out of holes that we get ourselves into. The Lord is in charge. The Babylonians were his instrument of control. It was his plan. And so he says, look, recognize the plans I have for you, therefore, my future plans are also in place. This is all part of the plan. Future plans. This is what the Lord says, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to you to bring you back to this place. The Lord has not abandoned his people. He's not abandoned his promises. He's not abandoned his plans. They're in place, not in two years, as Hananiah falsely said, but 70 years down the road. 70 years down the road, another king of another empire, Cyrus, king of Persia, will wake up one morning and think, gosh, I've got a great idea. I think I'll let the Jews go back to Jerusalem. Why would he do that? Because it was God's time. God rules empires, nations, emperors. Kingdoms rise and fall, but the Lord and the word of the Lord stands forever. So, if God is in control of the past, and if his promise regarding the future, what do you do if you're God's people, part of God's people, and you ain't going to make the return trip? Because in 70 years you'll all be dead. How do you live in the future? In the light of the future? Well, the Lord says, I've got some present plans for you because this is going to happen. This is how you're to live. And these are remarkable verses for the people living in, in Babylon of all places. This terrible corrupt power, superpower. He says to his people, well, here's what I want you to do. Just build houses, settle down, have families, pray for the prosperity of Babylon, pray for the city, and I hope we'll come back to this later, how we should pray for our nation and how we should pray for Edinburgh. Pray because when it prospers, you will prosper. In other words, don't just sit there and say, well, God's got his plans in place. There's nothing we can do. We may as well give up, but we'll just wait for the future to come. Or for the Christian, we'll just wait for Christ to return. We'll just sit around and do nothing. No, he says, get involved in the present. 
Philip Reichen comments again. The, people, the exiles in Babylon did not have to wait 70 years for God to do them any good. His plans included their present prosperity. And he points out that the word that's used here for prosperity is the Hebrew word shalom, which means God's, God's favour in all of its aspects, material, physical, spiritual. Philip Rackham says, Shalom is an all-encompassing peace. God promised that he would give his people that peace right away. Now, if you're a Christian, you live in the future hope that one day the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever and that Christ will return. But we don't know when. We don't have a 70-year date. Could be any time, long in the future. In God's time and economy, where a day is a thousand years, a thousand years is one day. So what do you do? You live in the present by faith. God's plans for you now are good. They're not to harm you. Some of us have got this terrible feeling that God is out to get us. So that when something good happens to us, we think, there must be a mistake somewhere, there's a disaster just around the corner. I must admit, I suffer from that syndrome sometimes. God says, I've got plans to prosper you, not to harm you, to give you a hope and a future now. But there is a condition. You're going to apply this verse to yourself. There is a condition that we truly seek God with all our hearts and not our own plans. Verse 13, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Now here's the question. Are we prepared to abandon our own plans? Follow God's plan. You now the second favourite verse is Proverbs 3, 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. In other words, there is a condition. And some of us are trying to run our own lives our own way and we're in disaster as a result. We made bad choices, bad relationships, Bad careers, bad friends. And we're living with the consequences because the Bible says in the New Testament, Galatians 6, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever you sow, you reap. But God comes to us and says, turn from those ways. I've got plans for you. If you belong to Christ, he's got plans for you to give you a future and a hope. Now, if you will seek him with all your heart. Now, am I prepared to do that? Am I prepared to trust him? with my life. Now our time is going, we're coming to the Lord's table, but let me conclude by trying to answer my question, which I began with. Am I justified in using Jeremiah 29:11 as my favourite verse? Are we justified in putting it on a poster outside the church so that other people walking past will see it and say, gosh, God's got a plan for me in the future and a hope. Yes, I want to say we are. Probably guessed that, otherwise we wouldn't have printed them all out and given them to you. Providing Providing that we remember that God's plans and promises find all their fulfilment in his son Jesus Christ. And what the Apostle Paul said right into Christians in Corinth, 2 Corinthians 1, said, Jesus is the key to God's promises. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. In other words, he's the one who puts his seal of approval on them And that's why through him the Amen is spoken. 
to the glory of God. So that when we pray, we say, in the name of Jesus, Amen. Amen means, Hebrew means settled, finished, secure. Why? Because we've come in the authority of the name of Jesus. Now we'll discover that Jeremiah had a pretty tough time. He knew what it was to go through black despair. He's been called a weeping prophet. But it's through Jeremiah, in fact, through the pain, it's through Jeremiah alone that we have the clearest, in fact, the only promise in the whole Old Testament of a new covenant that God promised to make with his people, which is why we're here today. Jeremiah 31. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. This is the covenant I'll make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I'll put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I'll forgive their wickedness and remember their sin no more. That promise of a new covenant was fulfilled in Jesus. I was talking to Colin this week and Rodney and saying, it's amazing after studying the Bible for years and years, you suddenly see something that you never noticed before. You've probably noticed it, all of you, but in my ignorance and blindness. When we come to this table, Rodney will probably say some words, some words of the Lord Jesus Christ. At a Passover meal on the night he was betrayed, the Passover represented the best of the old covenant, God's rescue of his people from Egypt. Jesus took a cup gave it to his disciples and he quoted Jeremiah 31. He said, or at least the fulfillment of it, he said, this is my blood of the new covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. He's thinking of Jeremiah. God made that promise centuries before and said, You'll be able to know me. I'll forgive your sins. I'll make a new covenant. Jesus said to his followers, and we'll celebrate it together. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And so as we drink this cup together, we celebrate the fulfillment of Jeremiah 29, 11, of Jeremiah 31, of all God's promises. And that's why we want passers-by to see the verse. I'm really grateful to Ali, who designed the card for us, because he got it right. Because the background or the foreground to Jeremiah 29, 11, what it points towards is the cross. And that's what I want people to see and us to see and understand and to affirm. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Wow. Isn't that amazing? going to celebrate that as we come around the Lord's table. Let's sing about that and about God's great love for us and then run his